Welcome, everyone. I told you to start at five past, and we have to finish at, at five two. So I'll do my best to make sure you can escape in time. I'll also try and keep a little bit of time at the end for questions. Um, well, thank you for giving up your lunch to come along and listen to this talk. Today, I'd like to talk about risk sharing and the employment relationship, and um, look at a number of different aspects of it. I'll just get used to the. But perhaps to start, it would be um, good just to think of some of the different alternatives, different alternative ways in which we can trade labour services, whether it be work as employees or as self-employed. What I've got here are a number of pictures from courtesy of Google Image of different types of work. Uh, I don't know whether you can identify all of them. Um, this is meant to be a writer who's perhaps working freelance, not one of you writing your essays, but I guess you've got laptops these days, not typewriters and bits of paper. Um, a window cleaner, um, a translator, uh, a plumber, and a Beijing taxi driver. Um, and I suppose you might ask, what have all these different people got in common? Well, one thing perhaps they have in common is the nature, the, the way that their work is organized and the way it is sold to their customers. All of these work as self-employed or as, as freelance, which means that they have a direct relationship with their customer. They're very much their own boss. They work on their own account. Uh, the Beijing taxi driver will take a fare from the passenger and um, like taxi drivers in New York and London and across the world, um, generally be self-employed without having a boss, uh, but as I said, work directly with the customers, negotiate fares with them and take the money from them. Plumbers are pretty much the same the world over, at least when they're doing domestic plumbing, the kind of thing that you or I might have when our bath overflows or um, we can't get the taps to turn on and off. Translators also quite often work freelance, uh, as do window cleaners. And of course, most of all, builders. If ever you have to have any building work done, you know that you've got to get out the yellow pages um, or go on yell.com and hunt around for a load of local builders who might be one or two people working together and get around to negotiating about the job and the price and everything else with them. So that's one way of um, contracting to by labor services. And really, what happens in this case, is, as you can see, in all, there's a specific item or a specific service or a specific product that you negotiate over with the person who's selling it to you. And it's all specified in advance. And if you want to change it, well, you have to renegotiate and start and do something else. The other, and the much more widespread way of of hiring labour services is to hire people as employees. I'm an employee of the LSE. Um, some of you may be employees of the LSE at the future, or you may be employees in, in other types of organisations. You can see a rather different kind of position, really. I mean, if you looked at the previous pictures, you could see that nearly all of them, all of the people there, had an easily identifiable occupation. And you can immediately think of a friend of yours as that person, a taxi driver or a a translator or a hairdresser or any of these other freelance self-employed occupations. Um, this one I like because it's a company which is very much under siege at the moment, Cadbury. Uh, and it's probably rather hard to, to work out exactly what occupation they're doing. You can see what kind of activity they're doing. They're wrapping chocolates and putting or something like that and putting them on a the production line. On a, uh, the guy in the middle used to be the symbol of the tax man until we discovered we had more tax women than tax men um, in, in Britain, as in most countries. People in a call centre, um, people producing the original mini, uh, not this new souped-up one made by who knows who, um, and a, a Chinese um, dim sum factory. Uh, again, in each of those cases, it's much harder to think exactly what is the occupation that those people are doing in. And they're working in a very different environment from the, the plumber or the taxi driver or the freelance translator. These people have all got bosses. I guess Hector the inspector um, is very much the symbol of the bureaucrat who has a boss and his boss has a boss and the boss's boss has a boss uh, and so on. Very different ways of organizing work and of course 
contracting for it and ultimately also of paying for it. Now, whereas with the taxi driver you might have negotiated the fare for a particular journey that you want to undertake and then pay it, if you want to go somewhere else you negotiate again and pay a bit more, these people have all been hired um, with an open-ended contract. Um, I first joined LSE nearly three decades ago, um, a very open-ended contract in time. Other people still have long-term contracts of that kind. And you can see the variety of services that I've had to provide LSE and um, students at LSE could have evolved immensely over time. And the idea that what I was going to do when I was hired 30 years ago could be predicted and like we could write a contract that specified all that doesn't really work. It's a, an open-ended contract and in exchange for that open-ended indefinite contract, I agree to let my, Howard Davis, my boss, or the people lower down in LSE, direct the work that I undertake. Obviously, I've got quite a lot of freedom in it because it's a university, but much more freedom than perhaps in the, the chicken factory or the car factory or the chocolate factory or the, or the tax office. So a very different way of contracting to provide and to pay for, for labour services. Now, Coase and Simon, um, two thinkers, one an economist, one a sociologist, have contributed a great deal to our understanding of the relationship between these two very different ways of, of contracting to provide labour services. Providing it as a, under a sales contract, where you rely very much on the open market as a way of determining the transaction, or providing those services as an employee subject to the, to the authority of a manager. And Coase asked a very interesting question. Um, being an economist, he was very used to the thinking that, um, that markets are very efficient ways of coordinating activity and of allocating resources. But that gives rise to a puzzle. Why is it that if markets are so efficient, as our undergraduate lectures and things tell us, do we see that most people work as employees in organisations and we see most economic activity carried out by firms rather than by market, open market transactions? And this puzzle led Coase to ask, maybe there are certain costs to using markets as a way of organising activity. And when those costs become high, then it might be cheaper to coordinate actions directly under the authority of a manager and to carry this out within a firm. Now, a lot of people have looked at Coase very much from the point of view of explaining the theory of the firm, but perhaps less have focused on the other aspect of Coase's idea, and that is that, that firms are not just business organisations, they're also employing organisations. So, for example, when I agree perhaps to work for LSE as an employee rather than a freelance lecturer who might be paid according to the lectures I'm doing, um, I agree to accept the authority of Howard Davis, um, but within certain limits. And these limits are very important. Um, Coase pointed out that if there were no limits on what Howard Davis could ask of me in my job as, a, as an employee, this would be a tantamount to slavery. Slave, there are no limits. But for employees, and particularly employees who have the freedom to choose whether they work for one organisation or another, or choose whether they're going to work, in my case perhaps to work as an employee, a lecturer, rather than a freelance le consultant type of lecturer, in that case there must be some limits because otherwise I wouldn't choose to work under those terms. So, Coase stressed very much the idea that when employees are hired by organisations, they let the managerial hierarchy substitute for the coordinating mechanisms of the market. But, and of course also, the, the terms of the contract, as for those of, many, as for those of employees, are fit, if you like, they're completed after you've been hired. My appointment letter from LSE was probably about half a page long. And I think it just said I should do some lecturing and some research and some duties as directed by the LSE's director. But, that's a very vague and very open-ended commitment and obligation that both parties have entered into. Nothing like saying, well, you're going to clean all of those windows for me. Oh, yes, we'll, 
have you, cleaning those windows up there, but we'll give a better price because they're a bit more dangerous and difficult to get at. Um, and we'll negotiate something else for cleaning windows somewhere else. One bargain at the beginning, and then we carry on working under those arrangements for um, an indefinite period of time. So, Coe saw one of the advantages of um, establishing the purchase of labour services through the employment relationship rather than the, the open market sales type of contract. Because you saw one advantage of it saving a great deal of negotiation. You just have a management instruction rather than sitting down for an hour and a half trying to work out all the terms and, and to negotiate and find what's agreeable. Simon was a sociologist. In fact, he's a kind of multidisciplinary person who did a million different disciplines. Um, he took a very similar view to that of Coe's, but stressed a slightly different thing, although you could argue it's very closely related. And it could also be applied to the case of my being hired by, by LSE. Simon said, well, one of the advantages of the employment relationship is that by having management authority to coordinate and direct David Marsden's work, we can have a very flexible type of arrangement. LSE doesn't need to know exactly how many industrial relations or human resource management or other lectures it's going to need. It simply needs to know that it's going to have a certain number of students who want to take courses in that. And if it has David Marsden hired as a lecturer, it knows that when students want those courses, there's someone who can, who can teach them. That's very important in a university because what we don't want to have is people signing up to do courses in uh, a particular subject uh, and then they turn up in October and, oh dear, there's nobody there to teach them. Uh, so you want to make sure that there are enough people there. And one way of doing it, as Simon suggested, was by having people hired as employees. And if you like, you can think of this in, in um, um, financial terms, that the employer has taken an option on the employee's services. So if the employer needs the extra classes or whatever is needed, the person, the employee then has an option on those, and David Marsden will provide them. Maybe David has a bit of extra sabbatical if he has too much extra work in a particular period, but there's a way of, of dealing with those things. So both Coe's suggesting it's useful to hire people as employees because it cuts out a lot of bargaining and negotiation, which is very time-consuming and costly. Simon saying that we do this because in an uncertain world, organizations don't know in advance most of the time exactly what services they're going to need. So they hire people as employees in the expectation that they can direct their work and specify the contract as, as, as is needed. So the employment relationship becomes um, a very useful way of organizing work. Now, Coase and Simon, you could think, give us some theoretical reasons. But actually, if we look historically, we can see that in the 19th century, open market contracting and subcontracting was much the commonest way in which labor services were hired. Okay, there's the church and the army and in Prussia, the bureauc government bureaucracy, but most of the other labor services that were provided in, in the economy were done by more, more of something more akin to the sales contract than to the contract of employment. But gradually, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, a big sea change took place. So by the time that Simon was writing his famous article in, in about 1950, it had become much more common for people who are working in the labor market to engage as employees rather than to engage as, as self-employed and subcontractors. <clears throat> this perhaps coincides with Chandler's rise of, the, of managerial capitalism. Um, it also coincides with the rise of, uh, something we'll touch on at the end of the lecture, the, the, the load which has gradually been built onto the employment relationship in terms of so one institution for dealing with uncertainty, but it's had built onto it um, protection against labor market uncertainty, unemployment, social benefits, uh, retirement benefits also built onto the employment relationship, a whole lot of additional ones, other areas of social risk which have been built onto this. Now, um, I think actually, how many of you are economists? One or two. Um, time is fairly short, so why don't I summarize this with words rather than take you through the detail? It'll, it, um, I'll, I'll leave the picture showing anyway. 
Um, because it'll guide me what I want to say. Now, the important thing about thinking about the employment relationship versus the, the, the self-employed freelance relationship is that in the freelance relationship, you contract for a particular task that has to be undertaken. Translating a document, cleaning some windows, building an extension to your house, or whatever it is. Um, in the case of the employee, as Simon argued, we have a much more open-ended relationship. And in fact, what we do is that the agreement is that there'll be a range of activities that we'll do. David Marsden has agreed to do a number of teaching and research and administration activities in LSE that fit with perhaps being a lecturer. Um, but there are limits to it. LSE is not going to ask me to clean the windows. Uh, it might be dangerous if I did that. I might do more damage than the otherwise. Instead, he wouldn't ask me to sort out the LSE computers or anything like that because that would be the best way of having downtime for everyone else. Um, but there's a, there's a range of things. And what this range has come to be called, both by um, economists and also by human resource and, and, psych and work psychologists, it's talked about this as a zone of acceptance. It's a, a fuzzy range of activities of which people would work rather than a specific one. Now, basically, we then think that for a given wage, which is what you agree when you're hiring, you'll undertake a range of activities. Now, this is a very beneficial relationship for an organization. Um, it can also be beneficial for an employee um, the one thing that if you're a freelance translator or a freelance lecturer that you worry about is what happens if not enough students turn up. Um, the, ca the caption says, this is the kind of day I'm, I'm glad I'm not in business for myself. In other words, if you're in business for yourself and there are no orders, um, there's no work and no money. If you're an employee, if not enough students turn up, I have a lighter load and I don't have to worry too much about where my bread and butter comes from. So the employee can gain that. The other thing that might worry the, the firm, and this is one of the big areas of, of work in human resource management, is what happens if the employee, having been hired on a rather vague contract, at least where the content is rather vague, decides to take out some of this vagueness as uh, on-the-job leisure. Um, they'll relax at work rather than um, work in the, in the way that the spirit in which you were hired at the beginning. So controlling effort can be quite an important thing. There might also be disputes about how wide or how narrow the zone of acceptance is. I like this particular diagram here. It's not my job. In other words, um, David Marsden's been hired as a lecturer um, or in this case someone's been hired as a road painter and uh, where, does, where does my job end? Supposing that over time I was hired as a lecturer in industrial relations when I started but we have less and less students who want to study industrial relations and more and more students who want to study human resource management. Can I say, well, you're a nice guy Howard but um, I was hired as a lecturer in industrial relations. I'm going to teach about trade unions. Now, I don't care if I have 50 students or one student. I'm, I'm happy to teach industrial relations. Teaching human resource management is not my job. So one area of contention could be um, people saying, it's not my job, and, and insisting on the rather, they, you've been hired initially, and then um, you, you retreat to a rather narrow view of your job. I bet this guy here who, couldn't, who could, could see that picking up the dead rat off the road wasn't part of his job, so he just painted over it. Um, the other thing that people worry about when it's not my job is uh, this other picture here. Um, it's not my job to fix the tracks or even ring the bell, but if the train should jump the tracks, just see who catches hell. Um, one reason why I might want to stick to, say, teaching industrial relations is that I don't know the theory of human resource management. And I don't want to stand up in front of my students and suddenly realize I haven't understood all the readings that they've had to read and uh, don't really understand lots of the theory of human resource management. So if Howard said to me, look, I don't care, you were hired in industrial relations, they can go and teach uh, human resource management. 
And then I said, well, look, I'm not actually competent to teach that. Now, industrial relations and human resource management, you can expect someone who's moderately intelligent to make the transition. But there might be other jobs, um, we'll have a look at one or two in a moment, where safety could be at stake. Uh, but particularly what can happen is you ask someone to do something which isn't what they thought was part of their job, and then something goes wrong. In this case, um, the guy's not the guy who fixes a track or the bell ringer, but he gets the blame when something goes wrong. In this case, the two trains collide. So one reason, again, there could be a lot of tension about this zone of acceptance, is people worried that they're pushed outside what they feel is their area of competence because manager wants the flexi extra flexibility. Something goes wrong, and then they get fired. So you can see it's quite a, a tricky thing to, to do. Now, let's jump that, I think, for the same reason that um, I said earlier. But let, let's think for a moment, if, we, if the zone of acceptance is a really important part of the flexibility of the employment relationship for organizations, are there ways in which we can have a flexible relationship but which doesn't lead to exploitation of one side or the other? The worker perhaps claims um, gratuitously it's not his job and therefore sits behind the computer with his feet on the desk like the cartoon we saw a little while ago. Or um, the, the worker is worried that being, they're being pushed out of their area of competence and therefore going to be punished. Um, well, if there's no way in which we can solve this problem of having, of, of the fuzziness that gives vital flexibility, if there's no way we can solve prevent that from generating exploitation of one party or the other, then nobody's going to be interested in hiring people as employees. It's an open-ended road, but one that goes nowhere. And again, we have to think always, when we look at these different ways of organizing um, economic relationships, that the actors can choose. And if we observe that one is used very widely in society, we have to think, well, if people have chosen freely, how does it work? Well, let's think a little bit about um, how it is that the employment relationship might work and how, do, how does it regulate this open-ended fuzziness that enables, that gives firms flexibility, but also gives people sufficient protection against this flexibility of being used for abuse. I'd like to look at some examples of, of work situations um, where we can see a little bit how, the, how this principle might operate, how the limits of, of that flexibility operate. The first example um, is what Henry Mintzberg called a machine bureaucracy. Some of you may have had machine bureaucracy up to here already, either in your class notes or dealing with machine bureaucracy when you're getting visas and that kind of thing. It's a tax office, so Hector the inspector would be uh, somewhere lurking in the background, except this is an American one, not a, not a British one. Um, but you can see there from looking at the way the work's organized that people have got very well and clearly defined work posts. Now, there might be some variation in workload because tax, load, tax um, returns from citizens come in at different times of the year and some of them raise different problems from others. Um, but you can see that basically most employees there have got pretty self-contained areas of work and they can see quite clearly what is their job. Now, do they help other employees out when things go wrong? Maybe, maybe not, but it's... They've got fairly well-defined boundaries. The boundaries you can see they're defined pretty much by the, the desk space that, that, they, that they've got. Now, one or two other things are worth looking at from the point of view we'll come to later on. Um, management controls the, the workflow and, and controls much of the key information in this case. Um, so it fits perhaps very neatly with this idea that Coe's had of, of management authority substituting for, for market coordination. Um, very simple case where the management have determined the layout, they determine the workflow, um, the jobs that different people have got, um, and so on. If you like, it's a very standardized work environment. Let's think of another one. This is what Mintzberg called a professional bureaucracy. Um, there are many features that are rather similar to the tax office. Um, we've got very clear job roles in this case. Um, the surgeon's got a role, the, the nurse has got a role, the anaesthetist has got a role, and these people don't tread on each other's toes. Um, how do we know what, who should do what work? Well, they've each had different types of training, and they've got 
special qualifications for the kind of work that they undertake. So that enables us quite easily to determine where one person's job finishes and another person's begins. Equally, for the employer, if something goes wrong, we know whether to blame the surgeon or the anaesthetist because we'll see whether, um, what it was that caused the, the patient distress during the, the, the operation. It's slightly different, though, from the earlier environment. The earlier environment, management had complete control over the way everything was organised. In this case, the, the medical professionals have a great deal of autonomy. And of course, you can see why in a way, because there's a big information asymmetry between the management and the employees in this case. These people have all got advanced qualifications that take several years to acquire. You can't expect a manager to have acquired the qualifications of each of those people so that they know int intimately how all the work is done. So you have to think, the, the managers therefore can't define the work process in the way that they did in the tax office. They can't define the inputs, but they can define the outputs. So in this case, they have to rely on the professionals bringing the knowledge and the, their judgment of the work process, and the managers can define the outputs. Perhaps they're the targets for the hospitals for successful operations or that kind of thing, but they can't get too deeply involved in the day-to-day -day work. Let's think of another example. An administrative adhocracy. This is a term that Mintzberg uh, invented, but when he invented it, th there wasn't a great deal of research that provided findings that could illustrate the um, workings of administrative adhocracy. Um, since then, we've discovered Japanese management and um, the work of Alice Lam, who I think is mentioned on the next slide, has done take us a great deal in understanding much better how administrative adhocracy works. Here we've got, um, I've taken the example of, uh, I couldn't find a picture of a, a flexible bureaucracy. Um, they don't come out very well in pictures. But we've got an illustration of a very common activity of, of Japanese employees or Japanese salarymen at the end of the working day. They go out for a drink with a boss, and during that time they'll be discussing work problems and uh, also the work Work issues spill out into their, their drinking. Obviously, they may chat a bit about um, sumo wrestling and other things that Japanese employees might talk about. But they'll also be talking about the quality problems at work and try, how, how they might fix them and, and, and a few other things as well. Now, the administrative hierarchy keeps some of the standardization of the, of the tax office, but has a much more flexible pattern of workflow. And as we've studied Japanese companies, this has been one of the features that they've developed very successfully, a kind of workflow variability. And this has been one of the ways in which they've been able to get so successful in microelectronics and uh, consumer electronics and, and, and all of those things. Still very much led by management, but they rely on a slightly different process for dealing with um, organization than the tax office. The tax office standardized things. The um, Japanese model relies much more on what Mintzberg called mutual adjustment. The standardized model gives fairly clear guidelines as to what the zone of acceptance is. When we rely on mutual adjustment or adaptable work roles, it's then become much less clear. So how do um, Japanese workers regulate the zone of acceptance in their own workplaces? Well, one thing that helps them is that as we'll see very shortly, um, many Japanese employees have very long-term employment, particularly those in the core workforce. Less so for some of the non-regular ones, but the core ones, long-term employment, and this gives them and the company a big stake in the nature of their skills and, and their commitment. Um, it also enables management to set into motion peer group pressures and other things which help to regulate the the distribution of work. Those of us who went to university in the 1960s, early 1970s, of course thought that using work groups was a very dangerous thing for managers to do because um, this was a kind of counterpart to the first line management and you had kind of radical theories about how um, this would help eventually to foster the revolution. But of course we were rather optimistic. Um, and the last time I saw a slogan like that was, uh, vote X for union treasurer, smash capitalism. Uh, <laughs> I think all he did was bankrupt the union. Um, 
It wasn't NSE, I should say. Um, but peer group pressures can also be used by management um, to generate work effort and to keep things going. But you can get a kind of balance within that, that push people too far. The, the group has some power vis-a-vis -vis management to exercise collective incentive sanctions, um, but also management can manipulate these against particular individuals. That helps to give a, a flexible but contained area of, um, of zone of flexibility and adjustment. The final example is what Mintzberg called operating ad hocracy, perhaps illustrated by the um, kind of research and development environment. You can see from looking at the equipment in this picture that we're not exactly in the area of the hospital. Um, you wouldn't want an operation to be carried out with uh, bits of wires um, traipsing across the room. Um, so it's a very ad hoc environment, a lot of bricolage, to give it a posh word, or DIY type of arrangements if you give it a more uh, English name. Um, there are other things that are interesting looking at here too. Um, the hierarchy is not very clearly present in the way it was in the tax office or even in the, the Japanese work environment. Um, these guys are colleagues, so if you went to, you'd be going out for a drink with your colleagues, not going out for a drink with a boss, as in, as in the Japanese example. But equally, it, it's, it's going to be very hard to think about management controlling the work process because if we're doing research and development, we don't know what we're going to discover. So you can't define in advance things that you don't know. So you've got to have a kind of intuitive idea of where the work is going and the kind of thing that you want, and then, then let these people get on with it. Unlike the tax staff, but like the hospital staff, these guys, of course, are incredibly highly qualified. They've probably all got doctorates and um, done postdocs and, and things like that. So this is a very fluid environment. You might think, well, if you're working in this environment, how are you going to stop your employer from exploiting that fluidity, demanding that you work 48 hours a day, um, you do all, every time you take a shower, you're still thinking about how to design that transistor, uh, and so on. Well, because these guys are all highly qualified and highly talented, there's a very strong external labour market for them, and that gives them some counter-bargaining power to excessive pressures by um, their managers. So in each of these cases, you can see that there are ways in which the, the jobs, as they exist within the organisations, are defined, which help to give the zone of acceptance and agree stability, and therefore help um, to make the employment relationship a viable form of um, contract. Let's just pull all these things together, um, these different coordinating architectures. Um, as I said at the beginning, you can coordinate either by specifying the, the details of the work process and take direct control if you're a manager, or you can specify the work outputs that you want. You want X number of operations carried out, you want um, this particular kind of new product developed, which you can sketch out broadly, even though you can't give it a great deal of detail. And then we can adjust, we can coordinate work by standardization, which is very much illustrated in the tax office. Everything is standard, you have a, a form to fill in for your taxes, which again illustrates very much symbolizes this standardization, or we can work by mutual adjustment, a lot of give and take, variable work roles, um, and, um, but if you're going to have mutual adjustment, you need to have a good degree of trust in the workplace, and you need to have um, a degree of, I guess, countervailing power from the workforce so that their flexibility doesn't lead to their exploitation. This also maps rather nicely to the kind of uncertainty that we might find in the external environment in which um, organisations operate. What I've just done here very simply is to look at how we might have, how we might categorise different external environments as being very stable, like the tax office, where every year you've got to collect taxes from people, to a dynamic one, where we're thinking of things like research and development, things are moving very fast. Um, that could be, those could be two types of environment. But equally, we could think about whether it's a simple one or, or a complex one. Is it one which requires rather simple, easily learned skills, like how to check a tax return? Um, or does it require very sophisticated skills, like 
operating on patients in a hospital or operating in a, in a research and development environment. And obviously, if we look at those boxes, you can see that if you've got a dynamic one with complex skills, you're going to end up with the kind of environment you have would be one that's radically changing. Um, Silicon Valley, um, high-tech, um, research and development, um, stable, easy to predict one, the, the tax office, the government bureaucracy, um, and so on. <clears throat> now, one question that one always asks, I suppose, is the employment relationship has been hugely successful, uh, uh, perhaps as important a social innovation is the invention of the limited liability company. The limited liability company made it possible for people to invest their savings and their wealth in business ventures without feeling that they had to invest everything and they could lose everything. You, could, you can engage in a limited way in a, in a business. And this, of course, then means that the supply of capital to businesses is going to increase vastly. On the employment side, you could think, well, the employment relationship also was an immensely important social innovation. You couldn't really build the kind of managerial hierarchy or the managerial capitalist firm that Chandler writes about so much. These great American firms that developed first there and one could find parallels in, in other countries. Unless you had something like the employment <coughs> relationship as a way of mechanism for contracting for labour services. So unless you could solve that problem of how you get the, the zone of flexibility, but again, give employees a limited engagement and a limited set of obligations to their employer. Unless you could solve that, you never really create, you couldn't really build these big employing organisations. But we might say, well, has the employment relationship had its day? Are organisations now in such need of flexibility, global markets, information communication technology, complex supply chains, needing to be very nimble-footed and adjusting to changing consumer preferences, are they now at a point where they can no longer really hire people on the basis of a, a long-term mutual obligation between the two? There's a lot of discussion about bringing the market back inside firms. In the health service in Britain, we've tried to create a, a kind of quasi-market, as we have for schools, um, to bring the market back inside. And you could think, well, is this a sign that the employment relationship is, is somehow coming under strain and going out of fashion? There's been a lot written about networks, Silicon Valley perhaps being one of the prime examples, but um, in many other areas as well. If you look at statistics, we see a growth of temporary health agencies and forms of temporary employment. Um, as a French conference, uh, a year ago that we organised in NSC, French sociologists on la précarisation, and the precarisation of work. And we expected about 50 papers, we ended up with over 300. Uh, so this seems to be the vogue, the vogue theme. And perhaps to on the supply side of the labour market, uh, young Japanese students who come here don't think of themselves as becoming a Japanese salaryman working for Mitsubishi or Toyota, one of the big companies any longer. Some of them want to work freelance. Now, all this might lead one to think that the employment relations had it and it's disappearing off the face of, of the world. One indicator of how important the employment relationship is is to ask whether people are still hired on long-term um, jobs. Because if, it's going, if your task is going, if your obligation is going to be open-ended in terms of the content, they're also likely to be open-ended in terms of the of time, um, because the time element allows you to develop the skills that you need to deal with your own organisation's uh, flexible needs. Well, there's been a big debate about the disappearance of long-term jobs. A couple of articles in the California Management Review in about 1990: long-term jobs are dead was the title of one of them. Um, but the data don't really seem to support this. Yes, people feel more insecure, but if we look, for example, across um, some major industrial countries at the percentage of employees with more than 10 years service in their current organisation, 
We can see that there's hardly any change between 1992 and 2002. There wasn't much change between 90, the early 1980s and, 19, and the early 1990s either. So it seems to me there's something pretty robust about the employment relationship and about long-term relationships between organisations and their employees. But I'm not just a, an exceptional statistic, an outlier on a graph, having been at LSE for so long. Um, there are also quite interesting international differences. Yes, the US and the UK seem to be at the lower end of um, long-term obligations between firms and their employees. Japan, um, Germany and, and France up at the higher end with quite very considerable percentages of their uh, employees working for, for more than 10 years for their current firm. Now, if your current job tenure is 10 years, the chances are that your completed job tenure by the time you leave that job will be considerably higher, maybe 15 or, or 20 years. So um, these are pretty long-term jobs. There are also interesting differences between who gets into these jobs, and this, of course, is one of the big issues about um, the employment relationship, how, how equal um, the benefits of the employment relationship are. I've just chosen the gender dimension uh, because I think this is one of the most important ones. We can see, for example, that the, the Japanese salary man is definitely a man. Um, and I guess a skilled Facharbeiter in Germany is, a, is in, in the, the male gen masculine gender, not the feminine gender. Um, France is interesting, though. And this does raise a rather... Any thoughts about why France might be rather more equal in terms of access to long-term jobs for men and women? Um, time off is the factor. France has a much better provision than some of the other countries for, um, for, for mater in maternal schools and so on. So many fewer of the French women have to take career breaks than in some of the other countries. Um, and that's one of the big, big factors that the OECD picked out when it looked at these statistics um, a few years ago. So it seems to be a pretty robust relationship despite, as I said, two years of, of deregulation. But what are some of the future challenges? Well, as I said, the employment relationship has been a, a major institution supporting um, coordination under uncertainty, and it's been a way of sharing risk between uh, employers and, and, and workers. And Simon's key idea about the employment relationship was that it enables organisations to coordinate under conditions of uncertainty when they don't know exactly what their future labour needs are going to be, but they know roughly what they're going to be. And it gives them that, that flexibility. They can't predict their future needs, but they can allow for what they think might, might happen. The employment relationship has also become very burdened with a number of other um, um, institutions of social risk sharing. Um, Employment law is an obvious one. Um, a lot of employment rights. Um, you heard yesterday, I think, in Gordon Brown's speech that, um, that uh, agency workers were going to be accorded in Britain the same labour rights as um, permanent uh, employees in organisations. Um, so extending social rights beyond what firms might choose has perhaps become one of the things that um, has been added onto employment relationship. Trade union activity has also been more effective in protecting workers in regular long-term employment, much harder to protect them in um, precarious uh, employment. Um, social security, uh, one of the issues that Alan Sipior raised in his um, big review of employment law in Europe about 10 years ago, stressed the, the fact that much of our social security was still built upon the idea that people work in, in full-time jobs and are not really geared to the increasing diversity of, of different types of employment relationship that people uh, are, are coming up into. Retirement incomes are also conditioned on our having worked very much as, very often as, as employees. And social inclusion. Now, looking ahead, I suppose there are a number of key problems. I just picked up two um, because we've got a minute or two for questions before we finish. One is that uh, the issue of social charges. Uh, if you look at the European Labour Cost Survey, 
you'll see that um, in some countries, Belgium, France, one or two other countries like that, nearly 40% of, of labour costs are made up of what they call social charges. These are pension, social insurance contributions that are paid by the employer. Um, and the employers complain that this is putting them at a competitive disadvantage in the markets they're operating in. Not everyone agrees with that interpretation, but it's been a big, been a big issue. Others perhaps argue it's become a tax on employment, or at least a virtual tax on employment, and therefore perhaps lies has contributed to the rather lower activity rates in some of those countries. So there are a whole lot of issues there about um, whether the accumulation of other rights that accompany employment have come to make it a less effective economic institution. There are also important questions on the labour side. I think perhaps the most important one is symbolised by that difference in job tenures between women and men that I showed you on, on the last slide. That there are insiders and outsiders. The Japanese flexible employment system with long-term employment works very well for, for men, but it doesn't work very well for, for women um, because they're, treat, they're cut out and they're treated as, as outsiders. This balance between insiders and outsiders is perhaps one of the very important issues. So, what's the future for the employment relationship? Maybe we should pause there and if there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them. If you've got to rush off for another lecture, please go, don't worry. That's because I had to move over to HRM from lecturing in industrial relations when I first came here. Um, I was thinking of it perhaps from the way that an employer might look at it, that, um, that rights, rights become built onto an economic relationship. And employers like the employment relationship, they like the flexibility, but they may find that some of the economic advantages they derive from that could be reduced by certain types of employment law. Now, there is another argument, of course, that um, employment law may help to build the, the confidence that employees have in their ability to manage the flexibility without feeling it's going to be at their expense. So, protection against um, health and safety might be an example. That as a worker, you're very concerned about your ability to preserve your own human capital in the workplace. You don't want to find that, yes, it was nice working as a lecturer, except I breathed in all this dust from the student essays, and now, now I'm allergic to these things, and I can't work as a lecturer any longer. Asbestos would be a much more serious example, um, and things like that. So, um, if you feel you've got the ability to protect yourself against abuse, perhaps you're much more willing to accept um, a flexible working arrangement than if you don't. Otherwise, you've Maybe you just stick very narrowly to what you've got to do because you want that's that's where you feel safe. <coughs> so it's not just because um, I've had to learn human resource management. Any other questions? Well, if there aren't any, oh, sorry. <coughs> Oh, for job, job tenders? Certainly, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> 
This 300 French sociologists who wrote written papers on la precarisation. Sorry? This 300 French sociologists who presented papers on yeah. precarisation um, were probably very similar issues to the one that, that you've just mentioned. Um, on the other hand, there has to be two things. One is that a lot of the moves towards labour market deregulation really developed in the, in the 1980s. And those seem to take a decline of unions, um, greater flexibility of employment law and so on. These things all occurred well before the, the first of those two dates. And yet, um, and if you allow time for them to filter through, they clearly haven't made a big dent in the, um, in the figures. Um, however, I just mentioned the... Um, yes, I think there are two things. So one is clearly these are important processes, and they could they could cause major changes. But quite a lot of them are big changes from a small base, so big percentage increases, but from rather sm from rather small numbers initially. And so I can get the impression that, um, for example, things like increase of temporary help labour and that kind of thing. If you look at the percentage increases, they're big, but the actual levels um, are still quite small. And I think that one has to think, well, why would employers want to have um, a very detached, transient workforce? Well, they could arguably they had this in the 19th century, but then when employers find that they've got to compete uh, on, in terms of quality and sophistication of their products and so on, they then find that they need people who've got the right kind of skills. And so there may be part of the workforce that would function well, when I mention inside or outside of thing, um, with, and with very transient relations. But then a lot of employers still need um, very high quality skills. Maybe what's changing is the kind of thing that Wolfgang Strake has been writing about in Germany, that in early post-war Germany there's an inclusive system of social protection provided and employment protection, um, which is expensive. But while Germany is very prosperous and the world beater, that didn't worry too much. But what's happened in more recent years is that the, the big firms that have benefited from those relationships, because they had stable workforce, high skill, high commitment, have kept that. But they've tried to withdraw it from the, some of the service areas where this kind of investment in human skills is less crucial to business performance. So there has been a kind of growing dualization. So I think it's a very important trend that you, you have to watch, but I, I, wouldn't, I don't think it'll cause a nosedive in the foreseeable future in this uh, But you're very right to raise the issue. I think some of you have to go to other lectures, and also other people have to come in here. So thank you very much for giving up your lunch to, to listen to this. It's a topic that I enjoy. And thank you very much.